James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James 4, 1 through 12. Hey, Joel, would you mind reading for us this morning? Is that all right? You don't mind? Okay. James 4, 1 through 12. Hmm. All right. I think this passage fits well with the broad theme of the book of James, which is to be uh, doers of the word and not hearers only, or to have a lifestyle that is consistent with your profession of faith, or that your religion, the things that you do, actually parallels your calling in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, again, we're, we're called in this passage to have a, a manner of life that honors God, that's consistent with him, that's consistent with the fact that we are his children. Um, I want to start uh, with the end of the passage, actually, with verses 11 and 12, because it gives us two principles that I think link us to that broad theme of the book of James and also run through the first part of the chapter through verses 1 1 through 10. Uh, The first principle I want us to consider is as as he down here is is, uh, uh, encouraging us to not speak evil of other people because that places us in a position of judging the law, and it says that when we speak evil or we judge a brother, the end of uh, verse 11, it says, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And that really does connect us to that doer of the word kind of idea. So if you're pointing the finger at another person from a position where you ought not to be doing that, from a, a a judgmental or hypocritical position, then you're not doing the law, you're just a a judge of it. You're you're not being a doer of the word, which is your calling. You're just speaking evil of someone else. The other principle, it comes out of here too, and that is in verse number 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. And so that would be the idea that we operate before one God, right? We rise or fall not among each other's eyes or before each other's eyes. We rise or fall before God's eyes and our accountability is to him. And that is a, that is a double-edged sword that a lot of times in our culture, only one edge gets used, In other words, it's common to hear, um, you can't say that against me. God is the judge, as though you can dismiss, you can be dismissive of your behavior. How can you pick on my lifestyle? God's the judge, you hypocrite. Uh, Okay, but uh, have you considered that God is the judge? (laughs) 
Okay, so you can't, you can't dismiss behavior because God's judge. That's actually the other side of the sword is God is the judge. That's a serious accountability. So we don't rise and fall before each other's eyes, but we do before God's eyes. He is the singular judge. He is the one lawgiver, the one who is able to save and destroy. And so the calling here is that we are not to judge our neighbors because we all, myself and my neighbor, we both stand before God. This principle really should temper our, or mellow out perhaps, our interactions toward other people. Like really humble when we regard other people and their behavior and, and slow to point the finger, but it makes weighty our relationship with God, that he is the one judge and the one lawgiver. Jesus put it this way, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, human beings don't have that much of a, of a threat. We often have our attention on the threats that other human beings have. He looked at me the wrong way or he actually physically persecutes me. You know, that whole range of of oppression that another person can give toward you is insignificant compared to God. So don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So where is your attention when it comes to who are you accountable to? God is the eternal judge, and our standing before him has eternal consequences. Backing up to verse number one. Back up to verse number one. James begins to deal with this war within the heart. And he draws attention to external behaviors, the, the, the conflict that goes on in between human beings, and he draws it down to being a matter of, of a heart problem. The source is within us. So, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So, first of all, he's going to deal with the source of quarrels and fights, or that would be a wrong and misguided relationship with people. And emphasis on the people here, because we're going to get to God in a minute. But here's, here's a problem where you have a wrong or misguided relationship with people. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And his... his uh, Scale here covers the whole range of things. The verse 2, he's like, you desire and don't have, so you murder. I mean, that's a pretty serious expression of, uh, of a hateful heart to actually murder someone. But it can go all the way over to here, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So whether it's tit-for-tat quarreling over here or murder over here, it's all coming out of the heart or, or, or the question is, where does this come from? He first asks us a question, where does it come from? And then he gives us the answer here in the second half of verse number one. The, is, not, is it not this? The, isn't the source that your passions are at war within you? Your, your passions are your own desires for pleasure or for your own self-fulfillment? The word is hedone, from, from which we get hedonist or hedonism, someone who is just pursuing 
various pleasures, and those pleasures are within us, that we desire the wrong things. Um, our, our wants are misguided, and, and far too often, our want becomes the standard for what we think is right, because it feels like it is. It's the want that is genuinely within you. This desire that you really do have. And so it seems like the standard of what would be the right thing to happen. Or it seems like the, the desire you have is the thing that really should be fulfilled. And the problem is, is that our desires, our wants, are so corrupt and misled. If you're an unbeliever, your passions are completely anti-God. And as a believer, uh, too often we have desires that, while they aren't consistent with our new self, still reflect that, that old self that is at conflict within us. In Romans 7, Paul put it this way, Romans 7, 22 through 23, Romans 7, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, and that's your person, your, who you are, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The apostle was in this position, or he's describing this position, this experience in his life where he's a believer and he delights in the law of God, but there's the conflict, there's this opposing desire that is in his himself that wages war, and too often he would submit to it and do the things that he didn't really want to do. In 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter's exhortation is, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he describes those passions of the flesh as waging war against your soul. I think those passions are the same thing that James is describing here in chapter 4. These desires, these passions that come out from within us. And as, uh, as believers, we're called to abstain from those things. To not be living uh, from these evil desires that we have, but be humble is where James is going to get to, which uh, as a parent, that starts to make more and more sense why humility is such a big thing because it's like, hey, kid, if you were thinking about the other person more than yourself, you wouldn't just be living in your own desires. <laughs> uh, that that love for other is a... Uh, and your behavior toward them is really intertwined with you thinking less of yourself and more of God and other people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a good point to bring out. It's not as though there are certain passions that are just black and other passions that are just white. Rather, there are <coughs> desires that we have that in their lane are just fine, but because of selfishness, we take them out of their lane. <laughs> and we, we, we 
uh, act on them in ways that are more focused on self than submitted to God's word, and that's actually loving toward other people. Sure, uh, desire for one another is appropriate within a marriage and inappropriate elsewhere. Desire, desire for... Um, uh, he talks about not receiving things when you pray, like desire to have something in your life, whether it be an experience or a thing or whatever it may be, something that you might pray for, Lord, do this or provide this, that can be fine, but he is going to condemn it uh, for when you ask God for things because you're just trying to fulfill your own desires, where you're the central motivating factor for why you want these desires to be fulfilled. So yeah, that's one of the tricky things is that good desires are corrupted by sin and twisted and and uh Yeah, yeah. Uh one other clarifying thing is just because you have some desire doesn't mean that you can whitewash it as being okay in its place and uh let me illustrate it this way. If someone has homosexual desire, it's not as though, well, that is okay in its lane. No, it's out of its lane already. <laughs> and and your, uh, your, desi- your, your desires have been, been twisted just to, to get into that lane, and it's not as though it can be properly expressed one way and not another. It, that's, that's completely out of its lane. And, and uh, your love for God and other and others should dictate dictate you staying in the God ordained lane. Does that make sense? So we don't want to we don't want to uh, take this principle that good desires get twisted and then go well. That means that any desire I have is good as long as I don't twist it because you may already be thinking of it of it from a twisted place. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, so, uh, but but yeah, just. Just because you desire to have something, as he describes here, doesn't mean that it is twisted. It's twisted when it's focused on self. So good things can warp. Um, okay, so we got murdering, fighting, quarreling, and uh, these are coming from passions, and they warp our relationships with other people. And then he, he stays on the same thing. It's not a change of topic, but he starts to talk a little more about how your own passions warp or misguide or twist your relationship with God. So you desire and do not have, so you murder. That's an expression of your desires warping your relationship toward another person. But then he says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So you still have these desires. You want something, and so you go to God and ask for it. Um, Perhaps it's a genuine uh, need, and you don't ask for it. That's the one indictment. You ask because you do not receive, or sorry, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. So your one problem may be that you have a need, and it's coming from your own desires, but you don't even ask God about it. You just want and if you just ask God, maybe he would provide. But the second problem is, maybe you do ask God, and you don't get what you want. Why? Because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So there's sometimes genuine needs that aren't supplied because you didn't ask God, and there's sometimes uh, needs where you ask and you still don't get it 
because your focus is on yourself and it circles back to those evil passions. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That is that same word, that hedonism, that desire to just satisfy yourself. So these evil desires warp your relationship with people where now you have conflict and you're using people to get what you want. Or these evil uh, passions, these twisted passions, these misplaced, self-focused passions, uh, warp your relationship with God, where you might be just using God to get what you want. Even the, the gift of prayer that sounds like, well, that's very spiritual. Well, you might be doing it for yourself. And now you're using God to get what you want. I, I think it reminds us, too, that as we go to the Lord, and we don't know his will perfectly, we're just talking to God, and we don't know the future, that one of the things we could include in our prayers is, God, if I'm asking this from the wrong desire, you don't, I don't want you to, to give it to me for the wrong desire, but you can shift my desires. Like You have permission to move my will around <laughs> to be content with what you provide. Um, He supplies our needs, not, not just all of our whims and our wants, right? Um, so we do learn that we should ask God. Perhaps we lack something because we didn't ask God, but we also learn that our asking can be compelled by our sinful desires instead of being submitted to God, and we want to be aware and careful of it. And again, he's going to provide the antidote of humility as we go on here. Um, this is all, up to this point, this is all negative. Like the way that it's framed is all negative. And any positive application that we make from it is drawing out of his negative expression. He's just like, y'all are warring and fighting and asking and not receiving and you're doing it on your own desires. And, and, and so it's all just uh, his, his tone here is negative. Guys, you're getting it all wrong. Verse 4, you adulterous people. <laughs> and that's literally adulteresses, not because he's picking on the ladies, but because the saints are the bride of our bridegroom Christ. And so if we are living from our own sinful desires and to satisfy self, that's like being an adulteress to our husband who is Jesus Christ, which is, um, nobody likes to be called that, but if it's but it might be helpful for our hearts to be pricked by that terminology. James isn't holding back to be soft. He's God's, God's uh, uh, inspiring what is going to be helpful to the church. And he's going, I've, I've provided for all of your needs. Yeah. Or you can take it back to the garden. Yeah. Adam and Eve had, had provided by God himself everything that they possibly needed. And they wanted just the one extra thing that they couldn't have. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, uh, adultery is a compelling illustration here because it has to do with, uh, with unfaithfulness, with this provision you're giving and then just being unfaithful to it. And then there's always the, there's these two camps in spiritual adultery. There's, there's two parties involved in adultery because... Uh, if you're aligned with 
the party who you're supposed to be with, if a husband and wife are together the way they ought to be, then that's good and healthy, and that's like being faithful to God. But to run around and be fulfilling your own spiritual desires, that's like spiritual adultery against God. That's, that's you being aligned with that or interacting with someone outside God and trying to find something over here when you should find your contentment with the Lord. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. Um, Yeah. Um, Adultery is, uh, it's a harsh word because that's the word that we need to hear if we're not um, finding our satisfaction in Christ himself. And we, because we judge ourselves by ourselves and we're too easy on ourselves, we go, oh, my sin against God is not altogether that big of a deal. My, my fulfilling my own desires is not altogether that big of a deal. James goes, that's spiritual adultery. You go, eh, I mean, is it really though? I mean, adultery is a big deal. When really what? Physical adultery that we could commit on this world is actually the lesser problem than, <laughs> than sinning against God or not, not finding our satisfaction in him. Like that's an invisible problem, but it's more weighty. He lays out two paths as he gives these insights into the adulterous, spiritually adulterous heart. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world in this context is the world that opposes God. We're not just talking about a dirt ball in space. We're talking about the, the world system or that which opposes God, that stands against him, or the world as it is under the influence of Satan's reign. Um, in our parlance, we might call it the system. You know, like this, this movement and, and uh, force and this attitude that is against God and that holds sway in our world Um, and it's under the influence of Satan, and it's where we came from before we were believers, but we've been transferred to a new kingdom, and these two kingdoms oppose one another. In Ephesians 2, he says, we once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So so this, this world and the desires of the flesh that are involved in it, well, the whole The whole thing is opposed to God, but our desires are toward it. That that the 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 war in our members means that some part of us, some desire within us, wants this friendship in the world, and we have to resist that friendship with the world because it makes you an enemy with God. There's no middle of the road in which you can play both games. Or rather, you make yourself an enemy of God if you are a friend of the world. And First John, we do keep coming back to First John and James. It's like First John and James are related. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Matthew, or, uh, uh, Matthew 6, John just cited it. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So there's no way to ride the, the median between these two pathways. There's either friendship with God or friendship with the world. There's to uh, resist Satan and the world, or there is to be an enemy of God. And this isn't possible to ride the middle of the line or to, uh, to uh, flirt with the world while being, having a good relationship with God. It's not possible because God is a jealous God. He suffers no rivals. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't allow this extra thing into the relationship. <laughs> In verse number um, uh, five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It makes no more sense to try to be a friend of the world and a friend of God than to be in an adulterous relationship and expect everybody just to be happy-go-lucky about it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, God is jealous over his people. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He uh, delights in us and in us being properly related to him. He died to make it happen, right? He died for us to be rescued from outright spiritual adultery where where you're just running around from one worldly lover to another over here in your sin he dies to reconcile you to him. And so he's jealous about that. He's jealous about his honor and his glory that he displayed in doing that, in making that transfer. And uh, he's rightly jealous over his people. James, he cites what he calls the scripture to support this point. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's interesting because he says, uh, doesn't scripture say this? And yet, if you were to get your, uh, your concordance and to dig around trying to find where he's quoting it from, you wouldn't find it. <laughs> the, it seems like James doesn't have to cite chapter and verse for this because he's drawing on a broad principle that is like, this is the tone or a repeated theme of a lot of the scripture. You're going to find this taught all over the place, not in these words. So if I were to paraphrase James, it's almost like he's saying, doesn't the scripture say in so many words that God is jealous over the, the spirit of his people or the spirit that dwells in his people? Because it is a theme that comes up from scripture all over the place. Uh, right in the Ten Commandments, in the second commandment where he deals with a carved image, that's Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Well, why not? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's possessive of his people. And uh, for their own good, for his glory and their good, they can't go running off to other gods. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I'm a jealous God. And then in Exodus 34, he puts it even bolder terms. You shall, not, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. <laughs> He's possessive of his people. Uh, so you can't, again, have one foot in both worlds. It's an uh, it's oxymoron to think so. Okay, so this is all pretty bleak. This is all overall negative in its tone, that our hearts, even as believers, have misguided desires. These desires have massive consequences. We can't have one foot in both worlds. And you might ask, like, this is really bad. If it's impossible to be a friend of the world and a friend of God, and yet I have these desires and this war within me, and I way too often act like a friend of the world or love things that are in the world, and if that's just a, if that seems so impossible, we're all doomed. I don't think we can read this passage and go like, oh yeah, all the other guys have misled desires, but we don't. Like, no, actually, we, we kind of do. We're, this is a problem. And so there is this calling, this, this pointing out this truth that these two worlds are opposed to one another and your desires are all twisted and there is this big problem. And so thankfully, we have verse 6, right? <laughs> Okay, but he gives more grace. Oh, whew, <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. Because then we don't have to try to read ourselves out of the beginning of the chapter as though this isn't a problem for us. It is, and we have this calling, but our allegiance is to Christ, and he is exceedingly gracious. He gives more grace. And the emphasis here is on allegiance. He's calling for obedience. The Perfection is the standard, but he's not idealistic about how well we're going to perform in this life. Back in chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. If you've mastered your tongue, you've mastered the whole body. Well, I haven't, but God gives more grace. Um, mm -hmm. Right, in the, in the midst of a, of a wicked world. He gives more grace. The more is mega. He gives big grace. <laughs> mega. Um, he, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And uh, it doesn't say he gives grace to the people who manage to whip themselves into shape. He gives grace to the humble, the needy, the desperate, the people who recognize their wandering and twisted hearts, but they turn to God for the solution. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is, uh, this is sobering, but hopeful. Um, if you're, if you're uh, proud, you're not just resisting God, but he actually resists you. That's a dangerous predicament that he resists the proud. It's a position that's the opposite of grace. 
And, and we want to make a big deal about grace. Like this hinge point here that God gives more grace is a big deal. It's the solution to all of our terrible problems. It's his grace that transforms our stubborn hearts. Um, it's his grace that, that can change our warped desires. It's his grace that can tame our, our rogue wills that go about wanting our own things. Um, it's his grace that forgives 70 times 7 or that forgives like a king who has owed 10,000 talents. Um, his grace toward his elect uh, never runs out. It has no termination point. There's no place where he says, that's enough, believer. You've been too friendly with the world and too many times and I've had it. Um, it's just there. And we return to his grace over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's more grace. It's big grace, and it's available to our wandering selves. But the person who is the enemy of God is not under that grace. He's resisted or opposed by God himself. It's like uh, the opposition there is like an army being set in array against you. You walk over the hill, and there's the army set in array, and you go, oh, there's, a, there's an obstacle in the way. <laughs> there's some resistance there. And that's how God is toward the proud. He's opposed and against the proud. If, if that proud is never reconciled to God, they will be eternally condemned apart from God because it's such a big deal to be opposed to God, that God opposes them. But then he gives grace to the humble. And he goes on, we're running out of time, unfortunately, and we have to abbreviate. But he goes on to describe that this posture of repentance that is what the humble person looks like. And it's in the form of commands, I think six of them, seven of them. We have desperate need of humility, so, so run to Christ humbly. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. These, what's described here is not literalistic in the sense of we have to wash our hands to be forgiven, like run to the, to the laboratory afterwards. It's not literalistic in that sense. Uh, some of these phrases are reminiscent of Old Testament rituals that symbolize purification from sin. When they went into the tabernacle for their sacrifices, they washed their hands. And not because it took away their sin, but in that system it symbolized that they had a need for cleansing. And they'd wash their hands, give a sacrifice, and look toward what God had provided in faith to be cleansed for their sin. Um, but the overall tone of these seven commands is this picture of humility and brokenness. Uh, be humble yourselves, be wretched and mourn and weep, like recognize the, the massive seriousness of your sin and mourn over its defilements and fall before God without any pretensions of your own. That you, you come as a sinner. We bring nothing in our own hands to offer God. We have nothing to present to him except to fall before him. And our great hope is that what? He will exalt you. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. 
Um, this is, draw near to God. This is wonderful because he's the one we've sinned against. It wouldn't be our natural compulsion to, I'm, I've contaminated myself with sin, I better move toward God. It would be to get away because he's pure and holy. Run away from the presence of God, sew up some fig leaves and hide and go, don't come near me, I'm naked. Like, uh, because of our, uh, the defilement of our sin. But the grace of God is you, you, you run toward him. It's counterintuitive, but it's what he offers. Run straight for him. Uh, don't fear the naked shame. Run to him, and he will clothe you. He will lift you up. I think it, 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 it draws us back again to those principles we got from the last couple of verses, 11 and 12. Uh, where if you're judging another, you're not being a doer. So there is this call on our lives to be the doer of the word. But again, our ultimate accountability is before God. So when he's the one who calls us to run to him, we don't worry about uh, what it looks like. We don't worry about other people and the ones around us. We just have eyes for Jesus. And we, and we run to him. And yeah, we call other people to uh, run to him. This isn't saying we never point out sin in another believer because we want other believers to run to Jesus. Not to exalt ourselves above them, but we want other people to run to Jesus. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Our ultimate accountability is before him and he's provided the only avenue by which we can be cleansed, by which we can be lifted up, by which we can stand. We need to close um, but I encourage you to meditate on, on this passage. Um, uh, think about it. Think about how to make it practical in your own life. Um, our God, we uh, approach you not because we're clean, but because we're not, and we need you. We need uh, Jesus. So I thank you that for those of us who have placed our faith in you, our fundamental position toward you has changed. We are friends of God, and reconciled, and you love us and forgive us a million times over. So help us take advantage of that. Help us to uh, never grow uh, uh, discouraged or to think that your big grace has run out toward us because that would be looking toward ourselves and our standard again instead of, of your abundant mercy. Lord, help us to make this practical in our lives. Humble us and uh, cause us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.